You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I'm Mark Enetponais. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. G'day, Leo. What have you got for us today? Uh, Today I want to talk about market testing. So creating any new product or service starts with making assumptions. And a key requirement for success in entrepreneurship is to test those assumptions and ultimately to ensure your plans are based on evidence rather than gut feel. Market testing is a key part of that process and one that does not come naturally to a lot of scientists and technical founders. It's the process of putting a product in front of potential customers and determining what value they find in it and what they're willing to pay for it. This can be as simple as giving an early version of your product to family and friends, convening a committee of strangers who you feel represent your target customers, or it could be placing the product online and just keeping a close eye on how end users are interacting with it. Often market testing will include an assessment of advertising strategies to see which one is most effective at convincing customers that your product is the one for them. But ultimately, market testing is about confirming that your customers love your product as much as you do and finding out how and when they're willing to pay for it. So why doesn't it come natural to people? Isn't that the whole aspect of why they're developing a market to put it out to end a product as a product and put it out in front of people? I think particularly scientists, engineers and technical founders tend to, at least stereotypically, be more focused on the technical details of their product. That That's something called product development and product design. And, and that's important, making sure your product works the way it's meant to. But that's a different challenge than it is to be talking to customers and making sure customers are willing to pay for the product. So you might expect that perhaps a scientist or an engineer is really focused on ensuring that their product is the best possible product. It it drastically outperforms the current market competitors and they will put in the best materials, they'll put in the finest engineering and they'll create a product that truly is technically superior but perhaps it costs $2,000 to construct, whereas there is a cheap and dirty offering in the market for $250. And you might find that most consumers will accept a lower quality at the $250 price point rather than reaching for that $2,000 whiz-bang gizmo. So a critical part of this process is not only designing a very high-functioning product, but making sure it's positioned in a place where consumers are willing to buy it. So even if you do all this market testing and you get to the stage where you are convinced as a company that you have a product that will work in the market, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Betamax and the VHS video cassette systems. Betamax was in many ways superior to VHS, but VHS dominated the market and put Betamax out. Why, why does that happen? Yeah, I guess I can give a more recent example with the Nintendo Wii, um, which came out, it was in competition with the Xbox and the PlayStation. In many ways, the Xbox and the PlayStation were technically superior, but the Wii targeted a different market segment and, and was more accessible to, to a different set of consumers, so it was, was very successful at the time. I think one element of these two examples we've just made is that I guess both companies were doing their market testing at a time when their competitor was also market testing. So... 
they were both looking at a landscape where there was no video recording or they're both looking at a landscape where there wasn't a next generation console and casting theirs out into that world i, I guess it's it's always a, a time-based issue that when both of these things land in the market at the same time you can't necessarily predict how that competition is going to work out but they, they all highlight the example that technical superiority is not a guarantee of commercial success. And it is critical to do this market testing to try your best and appraise how a consumer will interact with your product, which, which may not be as related to its technical um, abilities as you might think as a scientist or an entrepreneur. There are other factors at play in consumer decision making. Talking about scientists, let me talk to you about peer review sure segue into the research let's segue into the research let's do it so universities measure the performance of their researchers using a number of key performance indicators and one of the main kpis for academic researchers involves publishing the outcome of their research projects in scientific papers in international journals now to draw a parallel with the world of business, you can view scientific papers as the products that academic researchers produce. And these research papers are initially reviewed by their academic peers in what is called a peer review process. If that is successful, then the research findings will be placed in the public domain through a publication in a scientific journal. Academics can then indicate that they've consumed the products of other academics by including a list of links, which are called references, to these other products at the end of their own paper. And a reference is similar to, you can see it more like it is a purchase of the scientific product. And these are, very briefly, the principal pieces of peer review. So when we're doing market testing in a business landscape, it's very much the company who's in control of that process and is, I guess, selecting the reviewers and analysing their feedback. Is that still the case in this academic landscape? How much control does the initial researcher have on that peer review process? If they submit their paper to a scientific journal, they have zero influence. If they decide another way of testing their scientific product by presenting it during a live talk at a conference, then they have a bit more control because people will ask them live questions. But to go back to the peer review process, once a paper is submitted, it goes to an editor and the editor decides which peers are selected. Now, authors can give suggestions to the editor as to who they would like to have their papers reviewed by, but it's entirely up by the editor whether they take up this suggestion or not. And, and how many people are involved in this process? How many academic peers would review a paper? Two. Only two? Only two. So as I always say to people, if you want to convince someone to get your paper published, you only need to get past three people, an editor and two reviewers. So that's probably not a representative sample of all scientists. No, before I got into the world of research, I always thought peer review was like a room full of people that would all like have give you opinions on your paper. And it actually turns out you need to get past three people. Some cases, maybe three, but you only have to convince three other scientists 
of your paper. So what does the feedback actually look like when you do get it from these two academics? What, what are you expecting in return? So the feedback is, is very important to point out. It's completely anonymous, which means that people can really go to town on you because no matter what they write in, that art, in their review, they know they're not going to be identified. The editor in this whole process is identified. So an editor will communicate with his name under the message to the authors, this is what's happening, but the reviews are anonymous. And that means that reviewers can say whatever they like because they know it will never get back to them. Right, well, I mean, maybe that anonymity is, is a benefit for truthfulness. Do you feel like you get more factual appraisals out of an anonymous reviewer than you, you would out of somebody who has to stick their name to it? I think it would be better if people stuck their name to it because they would probably not be as aggressive in many cases as they are now in some cases. There are, I have work as an editor and I have done so for close to 10 years, so I see a lot of comments coming back and sometimes I have to edit the comments because the comments are of such a nature that they're just not truthful and not really... They're not sticking to the point of focusing on the scientific aspects. Sounds like a pretty brutal appraisal process. Yeah, it is. Makes it fun as well. <laughs> all right. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening in and we'll chat to you next week. See you next week.